0: So, we've been uh, spending the last few days together practicing very hard and sort of feel like we're getting to know each other. Um, and um, Hopefully a little bit of uh, trust is built up in the community and maybe a little bit of trust in the practice um, and maybe a little bit of trust in us too. So I thought I would take on maybe a particularly challenging topic tonight. Sometimes it scares people. This particular aspect of the teaching. But uh, I thought we would stretch into it, and see what see what, see how it goes. And uh, the topic is not self, or anatta. And, um, I think it's important when we begin to look at, you know, different concepts in Buddhism. Uh, that it's. Um, important to understand how we hold those concepts is that we don't attach to them. Um, it's not about uh, believing uh, that there's not a self, and, and that's what you have to do to practice. Um, you, know, you can certainly practice Dharma and not, not believe or understand that particular um, teaching. Okay, because uh, that's not how insight meditation works. That's not how the Buddhist teachings work. It's not an ideology in that sense, you know, when you buy into an idea and then you invest in it. Um, It's much more about, uh, you know, providing certain tools, developing certain skills so that we can take a look for ourselves. Because that's really the only way um, we're going to discover the truth anyway. Nobody can kind of give it to us. Nobody's going to be able to give us freedom. Uh, Nobody's going to be able to solve our problems. Uh, Nobody's going to be able to alleviate our suffering. That's really our job. And the Buddha understood that. And he said, basically, it's through your own effort that one discovers liberation. Okay? And, of course, the, you know, the effort we've been putting in the last few days, and many of us have been practicing for some time in different situations, so um, we know that, there's a, that we, we have to earn this freedom. Uh, it doesn't descend. There's a very famous sutta, Kalama Sutta, uh, the Buddha, where some villagers approached him. He came into the village, he started, offered his teachings, and they questioned him. They, they had had exposure to other teachers, and people had different, of course, contradictory, of course, right? We all know that. Different contra- contradictory teachings and views and opinions, and they kind of were, didn't know what to believe, and they said, well, why should we believe you? And he said, yeah, that's correct. You know, why should you believe me? Uh, Don't. Uh, but you know, I have a teaching. I have, I have a practice to offer you, and uh, give it a go. If you're inclined to do that, give it a go and see. You know, see if it makes sense, see if it's true. And to me, that I would have to say that was probably um, when I think back in my early days of practice taking a practice on, You know, so much mistrust had been built up about so many different areas of my life and and so many of the authority figures that I, you know, whether it was government, politics, people, family, whatever it was, that to me that was very liberating teaching, which was to take a look for yourself, you know, begin to explore for yourself. That's really the only way, in some ways, to to see the truth. And so I was very inspired by that particular attitude because I had been kind of done with the ideologies and have ta- had taken up a few of them along the way, and they didn't work for me. They always seem very limited. Always, a- Often when one attaches to an ideology or belief system, there's a gap between the experience and the thought. So I think that when we reflect on not-self, the teachings of the not-self, I think uh, it's important, first let's Let's try to um, eliminate or clear up, if possible, what it doesn't mean. Just a few things that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that there are no personal boundaries. You know, sometimes I think that's what people get afraid of. Is that you know sometimes some of us have to work very hard at establishing boundaries. When we think of not self. We think of God. You know, um, what does that all mean? It can be quite scary thinking about that. Uh, it doesn't mean that one becomes indifferent. Um, to one's needs or one's personal aspirations, or one doesn't have a personal journey um, to follow. Uh, doesn't, um certainly doesn't lead to the sense, I think sometimes with the concept of not-self, people are afraid that it's going to be like indifference even to life itself, um, or indifference to one's own needs, or not taking responsibility for one's actions. And I think sometimes that comes up for people when, when they think about not-self or no will, you know, no will. Just sort of you're completely in the wind, uh, subject to conditions. So it's sometimes it feels disempowering. But it doesn't mean any of those things. It doesn't mean any of those things. What it means, I think, in its essence, and this is why it's not scary, why I actually find comfort in this particular teaching is what it means is that there's no solid, unchanging, separate entity that we can point to that exists outside of nature. Okay. That's it. Okay. So whatever we, when we're exploring this body-mind process, I'm going to go through some of that in this talk, when we begin to explore this body-mind process in a sustained way. What the Buddha said was, we won't bind something that's outside of nature, and all of us would agree if we just look outside. And say that's the kind of an, the obvious expression of nature, but of course we are too, right? We're part of nature, and we can. We all probably would consciously acknowledge that we're part of nature, but when we construct a self, the concept <laughs> of self, it's, we're, we're, we're constructing a solid sense of self, an unchanging sense of self, and we live with that identity. You know, in other words, we create an identity. And what the Buddha said was, but this process of identifying, you know, with changing phenomena, is, is the source of all our, prob- all our problems. I think sometimes we find comfort, you know, a sense of security in believing that there's this distinct self, you know, who's kind of in control, calling the shots, directing the show, because we want to be in control. You know, and I know for myself, um, you know, it's an ongoing challenge, you know, encountering uh, conditions in life, things that come up and you realize that they're out of your control. And and I often think that that, um, that awareness sometimes, if there's not enough equanimity or wisdom, uh, that awareness can generate a lot of anxiety. You know, thinking about everything changing, not being able to control it. I get, I get into that driving. That's, I think that's probably you know, I've kind of looked at that mind state a lot. Um, why I kind of so reactive, uh, sometimes to the um, the uh, habits, mostly of others. Um, and it can generate a lot of anxiety because and I think what, what's going on is that more and more it seems like uh, there's no wisdom mm-hmm. guiding how people are driving and you know it's, it's out of control it, and it actually is gotten more out of control and so that can generate that anxiety but there's of course a, di- a different way to begin to relate to that we'll talk about that in a few minutes but but by believing or constructing this sense of self, even though it might provide us with a bit of a security, identity. And I think in some ways that's why we construct an identity, to get that sense of security, um, kind of like a refuge in a way. Uh, but but we're, what, what the result of that is, is uh, by creating this sense of solid, separate self, w- what we're doing is we're creating a very small universe, a you know, very, very small universe, a very vulnerable universe, uh, and in that vulnerable universe, it generates a lot of fear, you know, and we have to protect that. And it also throws us out of harmony because we're not in of conditions. Yeah. So it's threatening when change becomes very threatening to the sense of solid self. So times of transition trigger that. When people criticize us, it triggers that. It also, our identity, our, our, our um, construction of a self, you know, it's a, it's a built-up process. It gets built up over the course of time. It gets built up through past experience, the things we learn, particularly the kinds of things that we receive or absorb or um, internalize. The big issue with that is that we construct a self and then that limits us. It you know, limits, limits our, our growing, for instance. Our, our, it limits our capacity to be more open. Uh, it limits our capacity to uh, transform or change um, because we're locked into a lot of preconceptions, oftentimes a lot of preconceptions about who we are. So this teaching of non-self, I'm going to start going into it a little bit more uh, in detail. But um, I think it's very important to, to realize that um, the teachings, what the teachings are encouraging always, is this sustained attention. You know, this silent, sustained attention, free of any preconceptions, and it's training the mind to do that. And of course, the mind doesn't do that very easily because it's deeply conditioned by the past, it's deeply conditioned by the things that we accumulate, and there's a tremendous reliance on thinking. And that thinking is very conditioned. So it's very difficult to discover the new. So what I want us to do is to take a look, try to take a look at, take a fresh look at, um, what are the elements? You know, what do we construct the self out of? What What are the experiences that we tend to identify with? In order to construct a self, and the Buddha had a lot to say about this. (laughs) I don't know how he did it, actually. I mean, he was so organized and clear uh, about his teaching, and and, um, you know, each each aspect of his teachings you can spend so much time reflecting on and exploring, and and going more deeply. But certainly, the teachings on non-self are very deep teachings. Um, Difficult to understand intellectually, or or difficult to uh, see directly. Uh, But every time we're really being mindful, you know, we're observing, for instance, an experience that we have, like a mood or an emotion or a mental state or whatever it might be. We're actually, we're actually moving into that understanding of not identifying with that particular experience. You know, we're 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 not identifying with as much if it's an object of mindfulness. So the the Buddha's teachings on not self What the Buddha said is we construct the Self out of this, what he called the five aggregates of clinging. Things that we identify with. In in Pali it's the khandas. I'll just list the five uh, aggregates and define what they mean and then we'll go into each one. One is the body. Well it's materiality, material form. Predominantly it's usually pointing to the body. Um, second aggregate is feelings, and feelings are a little bit different, we'll go into that in a minute, but feelings are, there's basically three kinds of feelings. There's pleasant feelings, there are un- unpleasant feelings, and there are neutral feelings. And what he means by feelings is not so much what we think in the West, like when we say we're feeling happy. Feeling meaning emotion or state of mind. Feeling means a tone or a texture to a particular experience. So a sound could have a pleasant uh, feeling quality to it. It could have an unpleasant feeling quality to it or it could have a neutral feeling quality to it. Uh, the body, of course, can have both pleasant and unpleasant and neutral feeling in the sensations themselves. Um, even uh, thoughts, for instance, uh, can be pleasant. It can have a pleasant feeling quality, an unpleasant feeling quality, and neutral feeling quality. And he spent a lot of time talking about um, the different relationships to feeling qualities. In other words, certain feeling qualities we react or relate to in different ways. Pleasant ones we cling to. Unpleasant ones we contract around or push away. Neutral we often ignore. We don't actually see. We're not often conscious of them. There's disinterest. So the second is feelings. The third place that we identify or construct the self is on perception. Okay, and perception, very briefly, is recognition. You know, recognizing, you know, looking at the color of the wall, and labeling it yellow, white, looking at the floor, calling it a floor. You know, that's perception. We're recognizing something. Fourth is mental formations, and this covers a wide range of experiences, thoughts, emotions, moods, states of mind, reactions that we have, um, those are all mental formations, and uh, clearly uh, we. They, we Go into this in a minute, but we can certainly see that there's a strong tendency to identify with our thoughts. For sure. It's huge. A tremendous source of suffering is when we identify with emotions. Take them, and identifying what we mean by that is claiming it as me or mine. You know, taking it as who you are. And we can see that, we, maybe we can see, but we, we need to see how that causes us so much trouble. How it It knocks us out of harmony, it creates a lot of conflict in us when we claim these things as me or mine, because it knocks us out of reality. Fifth is consciousness, and that's the knowing faculty of mind, the knowing faculty of mind, the observer, the observing, okay, the observing. So the body. I won't spend too much time on this because uh, most of us already understand this one, I think. How identification with the body, claiming it is me and mine, uh, how that causes us trouble. And we can actually... This, this one's a good one because it, I, I think it's probably the easiest in some ways to understand how identifying or claiming something is me and mine. First, how off it is, like how unreal it is, but also like how much suffering it causes us. And in this culture, um, it's pervasive. It's, it's very transparent, actually, I think. You just have to have a, just a t- little degree of wisdom to, to, to realize it, to begin to question um, how the culture relates to the body and, and how much suffering it causes. Basically, you know, the culture places a tremendous amount of encourages a tremendous amount of uh, evaluating or valuing different body types, different expressions of the body, you know, and we internalize that, of course, uh, in a lot of our self-worth. It is often conditioned by the condition of the body. So if the body doesn't appear a certain way, it doesn't match a particular cultural ideal, Um, if the body isn't healthy, Maybe it has an illness or it's sick. You know, what happens oftentimes is we can feel that identification process, and we take responsibility. We criticize ourselves. Uh, we feel less valued. And oftentimes, we are less valued by others. And we can see the suffering that comes out of that. And here we have a body that you know, we certainly want to take care of the best we can, but we don't have the ultimate say over it. If we did, we might not choose aging. I'm not sure I'd want to be perpetually 18, um, but um, you know some of us might want to reverse the process. I don't know, uh, but uh, certainly you know if you look at concepts about aging and and how we devalue that process, for instance, and you know sometimes you read these articles they try to counter that, but you know the, the conditioning is so strong, the messages are so subtle and so deep and so pervasive. And it's very difficult, to, really it really would be very difficult to actually see aging as a positive. Most people will say they hate it. Um, I won't say most meditators would say that, but, but I see it on TV all the time. People say, I hate aging. I hate it. How can I, you know? These books stop aging. And I just saw this book. Stop aging. Yeah, I'm going to read that book. I'm just dying to see how we're going to stop aging. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's no, not a lot of Dharma in that, put it that way. It's feeding delusion, to be quite frank. Maybe the intentions are good. Maybe there's a way you can you know, affect aging in certain ways. I'm sure there is. But stop it. Not yet. I don't know. Apple might come up with something. <laughs> too. They're pretty smart. And so, you know, I've been teaching Dharma a long time, and you would think I would be past that point of identifying with my body. But just to kind of give you a, a sense of how pervasive um, this conditioning is and how insidious it is, I remember a few years ago. I could lie and say it was thirty years ago. And it probably would be. Uh, you'd think I was past it just a few years ago, but not true. I was. I was at a gym. I was in this gym, this large gym, and, and you know, if you've been in gyms. Some of the walls have mirrors on them, and uh, i was at that time I was working on those you know those kind of machines where they call them uh, nautilus type machines, that kind of thing like that and I'd been doing it for a while and you know I, I don't feel like I over identified too much with the body, but it, there's a certain identification with it and you know mostly i'm doing it for my health but i'm lo- you know when you're doing those things you have to look in the mirror you got no choice so you close your eyes and then people think you're a little strange uh, so i keep my eyes open and you see yourself in the mirror and after like 6 months or a year i started noticing i was getting a little stronger and you know my shoulders are changing you know this is going on this is going on and i start feeling you know and i, I looked in the mirror i said geez, you know it's looking okay looking okay <laughs> and then this guy walks between me and the mirror and it, he has like tree trunks for arms. <laughs> I mean, he's huge. Like m- massive. And immediately I felt incredibly skinny. <laughs> like just like a stick. Unfortunately, I have a good sense of humor, uh, even about my own dilemmas most of the time. And I saw, you know, just how not only was I identified with my body, you know, taking in cell pleased with it. And there's nothing wrong with this. I'm, you know, I'm not placing, you know, I'm not condemning that particular mind state. But, it, but it, there is a subtle form of identification in it for sure. Um, but then I'm also comparing. So not only am I creating a self out of my body, I'm comparing it to a self. <laughs> I'm selfing his body and, and, and evaluating my body in comparison to his. So for one moment, you know, I'm like satisfied. And then, then that's what we do. Right? We compare ourselves to others and that's actually how we construct a self a lot by comparing to other people. And we do that with bodies all the time. We do that in many, many ways. So this kind of identification with self, uh, I mean the identification with the body, very interesting thing to look at. Because the, the downside, the, you, you know, there's a playful side if you can see it and, and realize it and if it's more transparent. And it's tremendously liberating to, not be, to begin to let go of that identification with the body. You can imagine, just when we're with the body, how much non-relaxation and how many judgments come into that, how, what a lack of freedom that is. And when we can begin to relax and begin to see the nature of the body, um, there's a lot of freedom in that and there's a lot less fear and a lot less self-criticism and a lot less criticism of others, yeah. a, lot, a lot less bias. And, all sorts of stuff. So that we're really dropping a, a big burden. And in this process of a less dropping an identification, it comes through just paying attention to your body, seeing the changing nature. You know, I've mentioned the fact that the body is an energy system. Well, it's not always going to feel like an energy system. When it gets sick, or you look in a mirror, or whatever it might be, it might, you not, might not experience it as an energy system. But it's important to see it at, at deeper levels, below the, the level of appearance. Because in that process, slowly but surely, there's less identification. We're letting go of claiming it as me or mine. And we may, maybe we'll never get to a place where we completely don't identify with the body. And non-identification doesn't mean that you're indifferent. I think sometimes that's what people take it as. Like non-identification means you're distancing yourself from the experience. It's quite the opposite. In Dharma practice, it's not about indifference. It's not about distancing yourself from the experience. It's about becoming much more intimate, seeing the experience very close. You have to see it close in order to be convinced. You have to know it really well. And you have to also know suffering really well before we're convinced to let it go and move on and recognize we don't need to cling. It's a difficult lesson. It's a difficult lesson, and we have to see it over and over again. So as we go explore deeper, we begin to see the impermanent nature of the body. We see its changing nature. And just in that process, uh, there is a letting go of the identification. Feelings of Vedana. This is a topic that's very interesting to Sarah. And when Sarah gives her first Dharma talk at IMS, eventually, um, I, I hope she does this one on Vedana, because I'm, I'm kind of just learning about it. So I'm interested in hearing what she has to say. Vedana means feelings. Vedana, Pali for feelings. Feeling quality. As I said, there's only three, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. But it, 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 it applies to all the sense doors that we have. So hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, feeling quality of the body. And mental states, emotions, thoughts all have a, either a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling quality. It's very helpful to notice the, the feeling quality of a particular experience that you're having because it conditions the, oftentimes our relationship to it. So our relationship to it is in the Buddhist teachings. As I, I mentioned a couple days ago or yesterday in the Q&A, was it's our relationship that causes our suffering. It's, it's how we relate to pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral that causes suffering or liberates us. Very basic. If we cling to pleasant experiences, according to the Buddhist teachings, this is something to look at for yourself. You have to see it really clearly because we don't get this message. By no stretch of the imagination do we get this message. But if you cling to pleasant experiences, you suffer. It doesn't mean that you suffer because you experience pleasant feelings. Nothing wrong with pleasant feelings. It's a huge part of life. It's a natural expression of life. All beings are subject to pleasant. But if you cling to them, it's a different story. Okay. Painful experiences—the same. Pain is a natural expression of life. All, all human beings, all beings, are subject to pain. How we relate to that pain determines whether we suffer or not. Evaluating, and placing a value on pleasant experiences, good; pain is bad. That's that's that cl- that's delusion. It's delusion. They're both part of life. It's part of nature. It's not good or bad. What we need to do is relate to all of these feeling qualities, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, whether it's a sound, or whether it's a taste, or whether it's a touch. By being present, we actually experience both our pleasant and our unpleasant and our neutral feelings more fully, definitely. But does that mean we suffer more? No it doesn't, it means we're more connected to moment-to-moment experience. But in that connection, what we need to pay attention to, and so much of the training is about that, first it's waking up to the feelings that you're having. Because sometimes we're, not, we're even disconnected from that. I know for me, a lot of my life, I think I was very disconnected to the pleasant. You know, I was kind of obsessed or focused on the unpleasant, and as I practiced more and as I relaxed more, you know, I started noticing a more full spectrum of, of my experiences and noticed that, gee, there's a lot more pleasure than I thought. You know, It could be in thoughts, it could be in body feelings, it could be uh, in different states of mind, whatever it might be. Um, so it's how we relate to pain that determines whether we suffer or not. And if we react with aversion, according to the Buddhist teaching, something that we need to investigate, it causes suffering. Whereas if we can experience pain, open to that feeling quality, you know, whether it's an emotion or a reaction um, or a body sensation, if we can open to that, the feeling quality of that, the painfulness of it, then with practice we, we're aware of when we react to it, but that opens up some room because now we're conscious of our reactions. That opens up room for responding to that pain with wisdom and compassion because that's what we want to do. We don't want to close up around it. That's cutting off half a life. But we want to respond to it with compassion for sure. We want to know how to apply discernment when we're experiencing something painful. You know, what's wise in this particular moment? What's a skillful response to it? But when we see feelings coming and going, the pleasant coming and going, the neutral coming coming and going, the unpleasant coming and going, not Indifference doesn't arise. But more equanimity arises. An ability to experience it fully, but not cling. Because we know that if we cling, we suffer. But we also know the nature of that pleasant experience is that it's going to change. It's not going to stick around. So we don't want to invest our entire energy in the pleasant. We don't want to invest our happiness in avoiding pain. But it requires an enormous amount of training and skill to relate to those in different ways, in ways that are creative, in ways that free us, in ways that lead to peace and harmony within us. Perception. The identification with perception creates enormous turmoil and suffering in this world. It's the source of so many of our problems, is this capacity that we have. It's an essential capacity. We need to be able to recognize how to get home at night, so we have to have memory. We have to remember people's names, even though I'm pretty bad at it. Uh, But, you know, we need to be able to have that function. But it causes a lot of trouble when it's conditioned. You know, it causes a lot of trouble when we learn to label ourselves or others based on other people's ideas, based on other people's stereotypes, based on people's bias. And perception is quick. You know, we draw conclusions quick, instantly almost. It's very interesting when you come this contact and perception arises, label. And it's not to say labels are bad; it's your relationship to that label that matters. In other words, if you buy into the label as reality, that's the truth. How you're perceiving that person or how you perceive yourself, you're in trouble. It justifies so many things. If we perceive someone as the enemy. Look at what that does, rather than as human beings. And we do this in in lots of different ways in, in everyday life. You know, um, there's a yogi that comes to CIMC. I have a lot of love and affection for this yogi, and and he he, he can stir up a little bit of trouble along the way. Uh, and uh, there's a great story he shared with me, and I asked him if I could share it with others, and. It's fine that he's happy to do that. Gets a kick out of the fact that I found this story that interesting. Um, his name is George. And one day he told me a conversation, and he talked about uh, experience that he had in CBS. Uh, and he was standing in line. Sometimes, you know, these lines can be really long. Uh, the one cashier, there's 20 people working there, and there's one cashier. Uh, so you never can quite figure that out. <laughs> And uh, for one who tends to be on the impatient side, um, they have these automatic things now that you can bypass that, but half the time they don't work. Um, so George was in long line at CVS. He wouldn't use the automatic teller anyways, or the automatic machine. So it wouldn't be his style. So he's in line, and, and uh, he's standing there. And this, uh, this fellow, maybe about his age, cuts in line. Walks right in front of him. Now. George wouldn't be at peace with that. Okay, <laughs> he wouldn't like that. And so he was mulling. He's a yogi, so he's watching his reactions and all that. But still, it kind of overtook him, like may, well, might many of us. I'm not sure. Um, so he's watching his reactions, but then finally he kind of confronts the guy. He says, you know, you just cut in line. And you know, he, he what he said was the first thought he came was, what a jerk, you know, that this guy cut in line. Um, so then the guy turns to him, and you know, it turns out and tells him the sto- This guy tells him the story about his life, a little bit about the fact that he just had some kind of surgery, and he was in line paying for medication, and he was very disoriented, and he didn't realize he had cut in line. So George took a lesson from that. You know, and the lesson, of course, is. Slow down those judgments. You know, perception is lightning fast, and it really gets—it takes us out of touch, you know, with our connection to others. It creates that separation. It's huge. You know, it's huge when we identify with that. When we take our perceptions as real, we create that self and other. And I actually think that's the source of just the enormous amount of suffering on this planet. That we can do that. And a lot of it's based on perception, our education, the kinds of things we learn. We pick up these things all the time. Incredible. I remember my grandmother, who was Irish, born in Ireland. And, uh, she passed away when I was maybe about nine or so, ten, and she was incredibly racist. You know, and she would just say so many of these racist things that were just even like, as young as I was, like just a little one, I was like, you know, just, whew, you know it just sounded so horrible and ugly. And, you know, she, she basically, I think, was a, a good person. But her, percep- her perceptions of others were so deeply conditioned by her background, her history, her, her, you know, her, her stereotyping folks, buying into certain belief systems. Uh, it was really a, an unpleasant side of her and it kind of alienated me from her. It kind of scared me in a way to hear that kind of stuff come out of her. So perception has a tremendous amount of power. So what we want to begin to do is uh, it's tremendously liberating to begin to question your perceptions and your quick judgments. You know, you, you, one may have them. They're so automatic. They're so deeply ingrained. But if we can be aware of them, we can be aware of that labeling, It doesn't have the hold that it could if we were unconscious. Because as I said the other night, when we unconsciously experience perception without any awareness at all, we're reinforcing that perception. We're reinforcing what the Buddha said was ignorance. And so much of perception is conditioned by ignorance. So much of perception is is conditioned by ignorance. And what the Buddha said was, ignorance is the cause of suffering. Ignorance is caused. Ignorance means not that you can't read or write, but what he meant by that is not seeing clearly things as they are. And when we explore the body process, the mind process, that's what we're interested in. In this framework, that's what we're interested in. Whether it leads to liberation, okay, that's up to us to see. But that's what the orientation the framework of this practice is. It's all designed to train the mind so that it can look for itself in a sustained way, in a fresh way, to create the conditions inside within the mind to take a look and discover that innate wisdom and compassion that's that's there already. Just needs to be, uh, a lot of things need to be cleared out in that process, a lot of confusion and ignorance. Wow. OK. So mental formations, I think I'll skip the fifth. Um, consciousness, <laughs> not my favorite one. <laughs> will get all these questions later. Uh, we're going to make it really fast on the consciousness one. We're going to go into mental formations, though, for a few minutes, because I'm running out of time. Um, mental formations, the fourth, Khanda our emotions, moods, mental states, reactions, you know, the things that we've been dealing with ever since we got here, the things that we were dealing with before we got here, the things that we've been dealing with ever since we have been alive. Uh, So, thought, emotions, moods. There's a... uh, (coughs) Hmm. I can't underestimate the radical shift that occurs when we take up a mindfulness practice and we start relating to our thoughts, emotions, moods, and reactions as mental objects. It's, it's like turning this cruiser, this long big steamship that's heading in one direction. And as soon as you start practicing mindfulness, that wheel just turns slightly in the direction of freedom. It's huge. It's a different way of living your life and it's tremendously freeing and it liberates us from our suffering our mental thoughts, emotions, moods. Because when we can begin to see them for what they are not me or not mine, but arising under certain conditions, expressing themselves in certain ways, forms of energy. You know, it's not that they're meaningless but their nature is, is, is that they change. They're not who we are. We define ourselves by our thoughts, in our emotions, in our moods. Place value judgments all the time, good, bad. Peace is good. Restlessness is bad. Having energy is good. Sleepiness is bad. Boredom is bad. Interest is good. That lunch was great. Well, that's not really a good example. Um, <laughs> just came to mind. Um, yeah, it's not a mental state, but there are mental states around it. <laughs> Um, okay. Uh, so like, like, let's take very, very, very briefly uh, the mental state of fear, the energy of fear. So we all experience fear. Many of us experience anxiety. I'd, I'd say anxiety is an epidemic in this culture. Lots of good reasons for it. We don't have to go down that road. But let's just say it's a predominant experience for many people. Um, and. Uh, what we what we see is that there's a strong tendency when anxiety, fear, worry arises. There's a strong identification with that particular energy. Not only is it a contracted, unpleasant experience, but there's a strong tendency to take it as me and mine. And we can see how that gets expressed, how the kind of suffering it, it um, creates. Because first of all, when we experience fear, we don't experience it with an open heart, so we often don't learn from it. You know, it's a habit of mind. You know, but we. We identify it as a problem, we identify it as who or, or we are this being. So immediately that's limiting us. You know, we define ourselves? I'm a fearful person. Sometimes people come into interviews or they'll say, you know, I'm r i am really, you know, I'm a really fearful, anxious person. I say, no, you're not. And they say, Oh, well, yeah, I am. I really am. I experience it a lot. And I said, Yeah, sure. I believe that you experience it a lot. We're not going to live in denial here. But you're not that person. You're not that state of mind. You're not that energy. It is something that you experience. I don't doubt it. But don't limit yourself, because there are other moments when you're not. And when you label yourself that way, you fix yourself. Fix meaning make solid, meaning change doesn't occur. And it creates a lot of discouragement and resignation. So what we want to do, instead of identifying, it leads to a lot of shame and guilt and self-condemning and hiding it and uh, not being transparent and living a life of defensiveness. A very contracted state. Um, so what we want to do for practicing Dharma is when fear arises, we want to, again, learn to relate to it in a skillful, wise, and compassionate way. In other words, to begin to pay attention to it. You know, that, that, that investigation, um, uh, that that investigation question that Sarah reminded us of today and I brought up yesterday, which was that whole thing around um, can I make room for the experience? Uh, it's, tr- it's a tremendous practice, because even if you can't, it's a good question to ask. It's an excellent question to ask, because what it does is it shifts slightly makes a shift when you ask that question. Even if you can't get there and make space, even if you can't, even if you meet resistance, then OK, so now I know that I hate it. And you try to make room for that particular experience. There's a shift in that, a radical shift. There's awareness coming into that energy. We're opening up to another possibility of relating to that experience. And in that process, there's a non-identification. We're, we're actually discovering the not-self of fear. Something that we claimed as mere mind now begins to be seen more in touch with reality, which is it's a habit of mind that arises under certain conditions, expresses itself in certain ways, and passes. That's the reality. But we often don't relate to it that way because of our history and our conditioning. So observation, silence, mindfulness, it begins to decondition the mind. And what that means is we stop identifying so much with these things that come and go. When the mind is bored, we don't have to claim it. We don't have to struggle with it. We develop more equanimity, more capacity to explore. Consciousness, the knowing faculty, really where essentially what, what i want to say about this is there's a strong tendency in the in the awareness practice to to identify with the observing and to have an observer you know this and obser- and having the observer is actually a concept there's observing happening for sure that's a process a dynamic process but the observer is something that we're imposing on the observing it's back it's in the back of the mind saying i am observing and it's actually possible to be mindful of that I am observing, of the I am. Because if we can see that, the silent mind, we can see that it's thought. It's thought driving that. And of course, that's our conditioning. Our conditioning says there is a knower, there is an observer, there is a commentator. That's the place where you see it a lot. Always commenting. You know the, So the observer, we can see the observer is conditioned. By a lot of negativity or a lot of conditioning or um, a lot of concepts or preconceptions, color, the knowing, consciousness. So, practice leads to freedom. Okay, freedom from. Claiming or identifying, and how in in real like terms, how that gets expressed is that like with our bodies, we actually can begin to relax and be more accepting, be more accepting the aging process, be more accepting of those times when we get ill, uh, because we know it's the body is nature, you know, it's subject to conditions. No matter what we try to do for it, it, uh, it, it has its own laws. Uh, it, it, Take care of it, sure. But when we can begin to see that it's just a natural process, that we're part of nature. We're not separate. Our bodies are not separate from nature. So we can begin to relax and accept and, I don't know, just uh, not, not be so uptight about what our bodies look like. are always comparing our bodies to others. are always striving for some particular cultural ideal and then criticizing us when we never get there criticizing ourselves when we never get there. When we can experience pleasure, fully, present, enjoying it, enjoying every moment of it. But when it passes, we let it go, we relax. We realize we don't have to cling. It was great, but where's the clinging doesn't help. It devalues the next moment. And then we end up questing more, craving more, for that pleasure, and we miss life. You know, we become very, um, oh, let's see, um, narrow-minded, petty, you know, scrapping for a little pleasure, when the potential for peace and joy and transformation is just right there. And we want, we want to develop a mind that can meet that. Uh, okay. Perception, again, it's very freeing when our perceptions become more tentative. In fact, that's growing up, when you're not so sure of yourself, when you're not so quick to label, either yourself or others. That's where a lot of joy comes in life, when we can begin to not do that so much. It really starves the joy out out of life when we buy into our labels life becomes very brittle, uh, rigid, lacking energy, creativity. Mental states, definitely. When they can become more objects of mindfulness, when we learn to relate to them in a skillful way. We haven't really, there's so many different ways that we can work in this practice in terms of how to work and hold uh, mental states, emotions, and moods. And we've only touched on some of these retreat, there's a metta practice that's a very helpful practice, a common practice uh, that can help in terms of working with fear, in terms of working with aversion or anxiety or worry. That's a common practice that the Buddha taught. That was a specific antidote. You know, it helped balance the mind uh, so that one could make room for things like fear or anxiety or worry, so that one could hold it and actually look into it and see its true nature. When the mind is caught in reactivity, it doesn't relax. It doesn't really see things as they are. It's out of balance. Metta practice can be a very powerful practice for bringing the mind more into balance, for, for nurturing more expansive qualities to balance the fearful qualities, which are contracted. In consciousness, when we don't have to, when the, the commentator begins to lose its power, we begin to see the transparent nature of the commentator, the insubstantial na- nature of the commentator, of the observer. You know, it creates all sorts of turmoil for us, creates a sense of distance. Remember when I said this practice isn 't about distance it 's about intimacy. Well, identifying with the observing or the observer or the commentator creates distance and for a lot of meditators, they just once you 've watched the mind enough, you really want to get rid of that commentator and that 's that people just get sick of it. The constant commenting this is great sitting, this is a lousy sitting, the food really is terrible you know the constant commentating it really drives people crazy. And, and, you know, people just are just done with it. You know, by the end of a retreat, you don't want any part of it. Uh, you know, most of the commenting isn't good. Let's put it that way. All sorts of horrendous things that the commentator comes up with. You know, anyway. You can't get rid of it. Okay? Don't get rid of it. Be mindful of it. Let it dissolve. Let it lose its hold over you. So when the commentator arrives, you see it as thought. That's all you have to see. And if you're not identifying with that, there's no power at all. Zero. It's a bubble. It literally just arises. That comment that this person's this way, whatever it is, uh, drops. There's no hold. And a lot of compassion comes out of practice through this understanding. I think that's crucial. You know, there's ways to cultivate compassion. Sometime down the road, we'll talk about that more, maybe in another retreat. Uh, but compassion is a natural expression of this wisdom, of this understanding uh, that we're not separate beings, that we're not a part of nature. And so, why create that separation? You know, why construct these ideas or labels about people? Why? Because we're afraid. We don't need to do that anymore. Okay, that's it. Let's uh, sit for a minute. May all beings have ease of mind, may all beings be peaceful, and may all beings be free from all forms of suffering. into a walking practice, keeping the mindfulness as you stand up and move out of the meditation hall. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.